Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Let's pray together. Lord, we do come. We come longing to be people abandoned to you. But we also have to come and confess that there were so many times this week that we were not abandoned to your perfect will, to your good pleasure. Moments in time that were too frequent when we pursued our path, our kingdom, wanting it to come more than we wanted yours to come. So Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that you are giving us again in these moments to be reminded of where our life comes from, from you. That we could come and worship and remember and return to you, oh God. We're grateful that you are a God of mercy and grace, that you will point out our sin so that we could move from it towards you, find healing every time we need it because you tell us your grace and mercy is available for us that way, and so we come. We come, Lord, saying that there are places that it's hard for us to let go, but we want to want to let it go because we want more of you. So we come asking you to speak to us now. We come confessing, laying things down that you, Holy Spirit, will show us that we need to shake loose, let go so that we can then pick up and be filled afresh again with you, Holy Spirit, that we would choose to empty ourselves of ourselves, that we might experience a fresh feeling. We long for that now. And so I pray that as we open your word in a few moments, that you will speak to our hearts where we need to be spoken to, that the message that each of us needs to hear could be heard from you, O oh God. So speak to our hearts. Guide us in these next few moments as well, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Good to see you this morning. Hey, I want want us to take some moments um, together uh, right now to pray um, with one another, uh, definitely, but uh, understanding that we are joining right now in this moment, uh, to pray with brothers and sisters from around the world about what's going on in our world right now, Um, especially for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine who are are living in fear, uh, and so many uh, being made homeless and refugees now, and what's going on in those other countries in Europe that are trying to take them in. And the need that we, as God's people, need to come and pray for peace 
the peace of Christ to come into this world so that peace, freedom from war might be present among us as well. So I just want to, to take some time for us to pray together. And so if you're you know, there maybe with family or with some members of your small group or, and you just want to kind of get together and pray together, I want you to feel the freedom to do that. Um, if uh, you just want to pray there by yourself, I want you to feel the freedom to do that. But I'm just going to, we're just going to take some moments and have a time of silence to, uh, to just pray together. You know, God's word tells us in James that the, the earnest or fervent prayer of people who have been made right with God through Jesus accomplishes a great deal. And I don't know about you, but as I've watched the news, there have been moments where I felt like I wanted to accomplish something, but I, I, I wondered what. And the Lord said, pray. Just, just pray. And so let's start there, okay? So let's take some moments and pray together, and then I'll bring us to a close in that, okay? Father, I'm asking you to hear the prayers of your people as we pray, God, asking that your peace would come. And so I pray for us now, God, that we would be people of the gospel of peace, that it would find its place in our heart appropriately. And then, God, that we would take the gospel of peace into the places where we live and learn and work and play, and we would dispense it. We would give it away. We would not remain silent about it so that peace could come in the hearts of others with you, so that peace could come into our world right here, so that peace could spread to a world in need of Jesus. 
We pray for peace now. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, good to see you. I hope you consider, continue to just engage uh, the world and the issues in our world um, with peace. I think we, we have a problem, Houston. Um, yeah? Uh, apparently there's no signal or something is what it's saying back there. So they're, they're working on that. I, I, I know that now. So when I come to a point um, in my message, I will try to spell it out really clearly since it won't pop up. Um, at least not yet, but they're, they're, they're working feverishly back there, so um, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, you know, like they say in The Wizard of Oz. Okay, um, we ended uh, the last time that I was here, and I want to thank Dave for stepping in last week and doing such a great job kind of at the last minute uh, for me. I, I appreciate that so much. Um, but I, I, I was scheduled to kind of start this new series uh, last week. And, but we're starting it today. And uh, we had ended a series uh, that we spent about, I don't know, 19, 20 weeks in the book of Nehemiah. And we ended in the 13th chapter, which was not a, a happily ever after story, was it? Uh, we, we love for stories to end happily ever after. That one did not. Uh, we saw how historically the Old Testament itself ended on a very bad note. Uh, just a, just a, a very bad note. We saw how what had been the great work of God's people, hope, and we thought in the hearts of God's people um, that would last, uh, fell completely apart in chapter 13. The first 12 chapters was about this great movement and this great revival and this great time of worship and a great season in God's word and a great new covenant being recommitted to by the people of God. And we saw this, this great leader, this heroic leader, Nehemiah, uh, himself, who for, for so much of my life has been uh, a great model for leadership uh, in, in so many ways, we saw his heart even falter and, and, and kind of fumble and him fall into uh, a, a trap of toxic leadership where things like control and manipulation and creating a culture of fear and intimidation kind of became the leadership that he gave. His heart was no longer uh, to shepherd God's people there at the end as much as we saw there was this heart of self-promotion and self-protection. And we looked at and kind of concluded that maybe God let the history of the Old Testament land there so that when the door opened to the New Testament and the coming of his son, we would realize how desperate humanity is to have our hearts truly renovated by the God of all creation. That our hearts would be longing as the hearts of the Jewish nation had for 400 years for a fresh word from God, that we would, we would realize that and we would long for that as we encounter the living word of God. And so I, I hope and pray that that has been true for you and I want to take kind of that ending, that, that final conclusion, if you would, uh, out of, you know, our time in Nehemiah about this renovation of, of the heart to, to go further to say that only when we have a God-centered, spirit, Holy Spirit-sustained renovation of the heart will we get to walk in that abundant life that Jesus said he came to give. 
that he would make available to all who would follow him and, and choose to continuously uh, abide in him. And so I concluded that's where the Lord kind of wanted us to walk into next was kind of recharging on, re, re, just becoming a, a, aware once again of the, great, the greatest opportunity, the greatest uh, invitation, if you would, that's ever been given to human beings, and that is to do life with God, to, to be able to do life with the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to, to have and do life in, in, together with him. A, a, a life that Jesus said that he would personally be our shepherd, a, a shepherd that would lead us into a life where we did not live with want, a, a life that, where Jesus said we would, wouldn't have to thirst again. And so when Jesus came, he extended an invitation to, to anyone who would come and follow him and be with him to learn from him how to, to live this life with God, how to, how to be with God in, in those kinds of ways. And that life, Jesus said, we would learn to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, and with all of our strengths. And it would lead to learning to love our neighbors as, as ourselves. In his own words, Jesus said that he would give the kind of life that would, it would be a, a living water that we would not have to, to thirst again and that that living water would actually begin to fill us and gush up and overflow out of us and spill out on those around us and it would be an eternal kind of life that we could live an eternal kind of life in the here and now, not just when we get to heaven. That it would become rivers of living water flowing uh, through us and, and out of us. And so I want to take some time over the next couple of weeks, I don't know how long yet, uh, for us to, to just kind of explore that. And I've entitled this series of messages, uh, The Heart of the Matter. Uh, because it, I, I really believe that's what the Lord wanted us to think about, is that the heart of the matter is the matter of our hearts. What's going on in our hearts? How do we gauge that? What do we do about that? And I am praying that... We'll all just come to see that, this matter of the heart, the heart of the matter, from Jesus' vantage point, from, from the perspective of Christ, that we would find new traction on living life in his kingdom the way Jesus said that, that we could. And so we're going to spend a lot of our time with Jesus' encounters, encounters that others had uh, with Jesus as he walked and, and lived among us and taught among us. And I want to start that today in Luke chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you, um, if you would, open it to Luke chapter 6, turn it on, which, whatever you need to do to, to get there. And we're going to read um, starting in verse, in verse 6. Verse 6 of Luke chapter 6. It starts out this way, verse 6 does. On another Sabbath. Now there's a reason it starts that way. If, if you go back to um, verse 1, you'll see that it starts on a Sabbath. And on that Sabbath, we don't know whether it's the Sabbath just before or several Sabbaths ago. But Jesus and his disciples are walking through a wheat field. And his disciples pull the head off some grain and kind of pull the, the chaff off of it and pop the seeds in their mouth and are eating. Some Pharisees see it and they accuse them of harvesting on the Sabbath. 
Now, remember, the, the, one of the commandments was, um, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. And out of that, the Pharisees had come up with these hundreds of rules on it, this is what it means. Here's what you got to do to keep it holy. One of them was not harvesting. Don't go out and plant your garden or pick your fruit, that kind of thing. And so Jesus takes them to Scripture, to an event from David's life, and points some things out. So they were gunning for Jesus. They didn't like that he, in their opinion, treated the Sabbath so kind of shabbily, if you would. And so we pick up in verse 6 on another Sabbath. And it says, he, being Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. So Jesus was the one teaching that day in the synagogue. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. Now, I think it's important to be captured by the reality that it didn't just say this man had a withered hand. It specifically pointed out it was his right hand. Now, in that culture, in that day, uh, right hand was thought of as kind of the hand of authority, the hand of power. Even in our scriptures, when it speaks of God, it speaks of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. It's that place of authority and, and, and power. So there's this imagery that this man was powerless in life. He, he, was, he was wounded. He was broken. He was completely powerless in life. His right hand was withered. And what that means, basically, is it was drawn up. He, he, he could not extend his hand. It was probably some kind of palsy. Most likely, uh, it happened at birth. The scriptures doesn't tell us. It may have been an injury. But basically, this man could not extend his hand. He couldn't open his hand. He, he went through, he was going through life that way. In verse 7, it says, and the scribes and Pharisees watched him, speaking of Jesus and, and the man probably, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might have reason to accuse him. Now, we don't know whether this man was planted there by the Pharisees. Doesn't say, but it would not be unlike them to try to get their point across, to have, have gone and found this man with a withered hand, this a man with a palsied hand who was suffering, and plant him, bring him, force him, if you would, to show up for synagogue that day, hoping to trap Jesus. Now, I just think that's kind of what was going on here. This man, I don't think, necessarily wanted to, to, to be there in that circumstance, in, in that situation. Verse 8 tells us this, but he, being Jesus, knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, speaking, I think, specifically to the Pharisees at this point, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, now, where was this, where was this man with a withered hand while this was going on? He's just standing there. He's down front, with he's just standing there now. Just picture this. He, he's standing there. Jesus goes into this kind of teaching and questioning, and it says, after looking around at them all, he said to him, to this man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. This is the word of, of the Lord. Now, we're told that this man is in synagogue that day. It's a Sabbath day. 
And he has this, this withered hand, his right hand that will not, will not open. And, and we've already talked about in, in his culture of that day, this would have been thought of as a special curse from God. That he had been cursed from God from, for some kind of sin. He would have, it would have been great shame for him. Now, whether he was planted there or whether he heard that Jesus was in town and would be teaching in his synagogue and he had heard about Jesus' miracles and he went in hopes that maybe he could be healed, we, we don't know for sure. But we know that, that he was there that day. And Jesus noticed him. Jesus knew what was going on that day. Jesus, Jesus knows what's going on in this room today. He knows everything about every one of us here. He knows, he knows what our withered hand issue is. What, what each of our withered hands look like. And Jesus says to this man, come and stand up front in front of everyone. Just come stand up here. I'm going to teach a little bit, but I want you to just come stand here. I just want to ask you for a moment. How awkward would it make you feel if I just called one of you out and said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep teaching, but I want you to just stand here. It'd be pretty awkward, wouldn't it? For you to just have to stand there and look at everybody. But this, this is what's going on. This guy's just, he's just standing there. I don't believe this man wanted to be the point of anyone's attention. I think he went through much of his life probably with his withered hand tucked somehow safely in his robe so nobody would see it, so nobody would notice his shame. And now he's exposed. He's put, he's brought down front and center. And, and this man knew this. He knew that in that synagogue that day, there were people there that did not want anybody healed on the Sabbath. Didn't want him healed on the Sabbath, but didn't want any healing to take place. But here's the deal. Jesus wasn't one of those people. That wasn't, that wasn't Jesus. And so Jesus looks at this man who's been standing there now for a little while, and he says, stretch out your hand. Remember that hand? That was the one thing he could not do. He could do a lot of other things, this man, but it was physically impossible for him to stretch out his hand. And Jesus has him standing down front, in front of everybody, calling him to break out his hiddenness, his shame, and do the one thing that he cannot do. Stretch out your hand. But the man does. He pulls out his shame, his hiddenness, and as he's displaying it to Jesus, Jesus enables him to stretch it out, to, to open his hand. That which was his misery, that which was his shame, that which was unattractive, that withered, shriveled hand now became a hand of power for this man. It became a hand of beauty for this man. It became a touch from God in, in this man's life. Now here's what I want to do. I want to make three quick observations out of this story and then kind of 
take a baby step into where I want us to go in the coming weeks. Okay, first observation that I make from, from this story as we think about the heart of the matter is this. In order for us to get to the heart of the matter, I must break through the fear that my brokenness will be seen. In order to get to the heart of the matter, I must break through the fear that I have that my brokenness may, may be seen by others. Jesus says to this man in verse 8 of Luke 6, come, stand here. Again, I think it was the last thing this man wanted. Didn't want to be called out. Didn't, I, I believe he probably had hoped for a private meeting with Jesus where he could say like others that said, Jesus, would you, I know you can. I know you have the power and the authority. Would you heal me? I, I imagine that's what he wanted to do, to have a private meeting with Jesus in which a healing could, could take place. Because he didn't want his deformity put on display in a culture where that kind of deformity was thought about a curse from God, that God, you had somehow personally angered, or maybe your parents had personally angered God, and so you had been cursed. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that this struggle was going on in this man. He knew that there were there in present in the room those who wanted to trap him. Jesus saw this man's brokenness. He saw the pain he was in. He saw the shame he was in. And Jesus had compassion. And Jesus knew that this man had to be invited out of his brokenness. He had to be invited out of his shame, out of his hiddenness, and into God's grace. Into the greatness of God's grace. Now, this man could have responded differently than he did. When Jesus said, come stand here, the man could have done like so many of us do when Jesus calls us to come stand next to him. He could have ran. He could have ran right out of the synagogue that day and never looked back. He could have continued to live in his hiddenness and his brokenness and his, his shame. But there was something different in synagogue that day. It was Jesus. There was something different from the religion that he lived in. It was Jesus. So he stood up, and this man broke through his fear of his brokenness and his shame being seen by others. And he came, and he took that first step towards Jesus. He went to be where Jesus was, and it was the first step towards receiving the grace of God that he needed in that space in his life. The Apostle Paul wrote about his own personal experience of this. Um, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, you know, we love Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who love the Lord, to those who are called according to his purpose. We love that verse. But that verse is in the context of Paul talking about his own struggle. Uh, you know, we love Romans 8, 28, but 2 Corinthians, Paul writes these words in verse 29. He says this, my grace is all you need. My prayer works best in weakness. So it, to, to the church at Rome, he writes this, but the context of Paul's own life, he knows is, is weakness. Look at this. My grace is all you need, God says. My power works best in weakness. Paul had prayed 
multiple times, at least three times we know, asking for God's grace, this God who could work all things together for good that Paul knew, asking him to do something about Paul's own infirmity, whether it was an emotional one, a spiritual one, or a physical one, he's asking God to, for his power to break loose. And God says, I do my best work in weakness. And so here's Paul's response. Paul's response is, I'm glad to boast about my weakness. I'm glad that that thing that brings me shame, that place of my own personal suffering, that place of, of humiliation, I'm, I'm glad to, to wave it now out in front of everybody. Because Christ can work through me that way. Second observation that I make from the story in Luke 6 is if we're going to get to the heart of the matter, I must join my life to Jesus where he is. So often what we want is Jesus to come just to us, and Jesus invites us to come to him, to to follow him. Jesus will meet us with our struggles, but he invites us into a relationship of following, not leading him, to come and be with him where, where he is. And that means I can't stay in the shadows. I can't continue to try to hide and live in hiddenness. I can't play it safe. The man in a story in Luke chapter 6, verse 8, Jesus invites him to come and stand, and it says, and he rose and he stood there. He stood there. We don't know for how long. We know that Jesus did a little bit of teaching. We know that, that Jesus looked around the room. I, I, don't, I don't think it was one of these. I think Jesus met locked eyes with every single person in that room that day that came to challenge his heart, that came to, to trap him. I think he tried to make eye contact with everybody in the room, and that, that would take a, a, a few minutes. But this man had to take a big step that day. He had to let go of everything else he had trusted in, believing that if I can hide this infirmity, if I can keep others from seeing it, maybe I can get through this life. I've got to let go of thinking that I can manage my own image. I've got to let go of that, and I've got to trust Jesus with this. I've got to let go of thinking that I can manage what people think about me anymore. And I've got to put my trust in, in Jesus. I've got to let go of everything else. You know, encounter after encounter after encounter in the gospel, Jesus extends that kind of invitation. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was beside the Sea of Galilee. And there were some fishermen there. And they were working on their nets. And Jesus extended a call to them that he says, follow me and I will give you a new vocation. I will make you fishers of men. The Bible says immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Now, I don't believe that that was the first time that they had heard Jesus teach. I believe that they had experienced his teaching. He had been teaching in that region uh, of of, uh, Israel for a while. And they had heard his teaching. And they wanted what Jesus came to offer. And they let go of what they had put their trust in. They let go of that to follow him. They dropped their nets. They dropped what their their vocation. They let go of the thing that they had that they thought would give them life. And they were forever changed. A third observation that I make from this encounter in Luke 6 is to get to the heart of the matter, I must trust Jesus 
to do in me what I cannot do on my own. I must trust Jesus. If I want to get to the heart of the matter, I've got to trust Jesus. I've got to take that step to trust Jesus to do in me what I cannot do on my own, in my own strength, under my own willpower. That thing that I want to see changed, that thing that you want to see changed in your life that you, you fear to let go of to release, that, that, that shame that may shackle you, but you want to be free from it. You've got to entrust it to Jesus. In verse 10 of Luke 6, Jesus said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. See, Jesus enabled that man that day to do the one thing he could not do on his own. That miserable, shame-filled, unattractive hand that he had no authority or power over when he gave it to Jesus, became a source of authority, a source of power, a source of beauty, a source of life for this man. So here's the kind of big question today for all of us. What is your shriveled hand? What is it going on in your life right now that you want to be different, but you can't, you can't change. Under your own strength, under your own willpower, you have tried and tried and tried, but you cannot, what is that? Because Jesus is coming to you and to me today and say, I want you to come stand here by me. I want you to be with me. And I want you to present that to me. You can't do anything about it on your own. But I want to give you the strength. I want, I want to enable you to do what, what you can. You know, there, was, uh, there were days in my life when, you know, I would think, I can do ministry. I can lead a church. I can be a good husband to Kathy. I can, I can encourage my family. But one of the things that I've come to realize is I can't. I, I can't. I can't do any of those things. I can't help fix somebody else. I, I, I can't even in my own strength fix my own heart. I can't make my fear go away. I can't make my sadness shake off. I can't make my shame or envy or anger. I, I can't fix any of that in me. I can only bring it to Jesus. I can, that's, that's all I can do day by day. I can't do it by myself. But I can take it to God. I can say, God, my Father, I need you. I can't stretch this out. I need you to invite me to do that. I, I, I need a touch. Father, I, I, I need your help. And that's where we all have to begin. We have to, God's people have to begin there, all of us. And as his people, one of the things we need to do is change the imagery of who we are. And instead of seeing ourselves as this, you know, as this necessarily great movement, although we are part of a great movement of God, we need to see ourselves as a fellowship of withered hands. 
that we are people, we are a fellowship of people, and all of us have withered hands that we need to bring to God. Things that we cannot do under our own strength, through our own personal power, we're just the fellowship of the withered hands. So here's the question, what is it that you can't do? In and of your own strength, what what is your withered hand? Is it sorrow right now? Is it a grief? Is it some failure from your past? Is it an addiction? Is it a a hurt or a hang-up in your life? Maybe you're a little bit older and you've You're living with a big regret and you see no way to let it go or fix it, take it back. Or maybe you're young here and you're facing a world and right now it looks like everything's falling apart and there's this huge fear. It's okay. It's okay. We, we, We gather, all of us gather, bringing our withered hands to Jesus. But we all come that way as a community, as a, as a fellowship. And see, here's the really beautiful thing about Jesus. The worse your story, the warmer his welcome. I mean, I, I challenge you, read this book. Read the Gospels. And when you look at some of the stories of people's brokenness coming to Jesus, man, the welcome that they got as the worst of sinners is incredible. So the worse your story, the warmer you're welcome with Jesus. And my prayer is on this journey, this journey into the heart of the matter, is that you will allow the Holy Spirit to show you and then you'll reveal to somebody else what your withered hand is right now in your life, what that that struggle is right now. Because what Jesus wants you to hear him say to you is, stretch it out. Let me enable you. Let me empower you. Let me take that, which is your deepest sense of sorrow and shame and brokenness. Let me take that and let it become your beauty and your power and your strength in me. That's what what Jesus wants. And you know what one of the really cool things is? You know what the international symbol for a child wanting help is? Stretched out hands. Hands that say, pick me up. Hands that say, help me. Hands that say, hold me. And you know what's irresistible to God? Stretched out hands. Bringing that to him. Because your father wants to lift you up. I want to just jump real quickly into a couple of thoughts about where I want us to go in this series. This series entitled The Heart of the Matter. Because we, we need, you know, we need, this, we need this renovation, all of us do, of our hearts. You know, I, I was scheduled to start this series last week and, uh, and then didn't. So it's been about two, maybe three weeks ago now that we passed an annual milestone in the history of humanity. You know what it is? It's six weeks from the point of New Year's resolutions. About two or three weeks ago, we passed that milestone. It's an annual milestone. 
You know, uh, sociologists, people who study human behavior, tell us that it takes about three weeks for us to learn how to do something new. And then it takes another three weeks for it to become a comfortable habit. And so for those of us who made New Year's resolutions back, you know, at at New Year's, um, we've passed that six-week barrier. And many of us have fallen off the wagon. And we've broken all of those resolutions that we need. And it's just a reminder that this thing called life I can't do on my own. Even though I will it and I want it and I write it down, I, I can't always do it. I can't always make it, make it happen. Probably today one of the greatest minds in kind of social psychology is a, a man by the name of, of Roy Baumeister. And uh, Dr. Baumeister was writing about a time uh, one of the things he says is that you can sit down with just about anybody and they can rattle off, just about anybody can rattle off 10, 12, 15 goals that they have in life at any given moment. So we've all got like 10 or 15 goals that we're running through. That we're, um, but the problem is, so often, these goals conflict with one another. You know, we say, I want to I do better at work and I want to spend more time with my family and I need to spend more time in the gym to get in shape. And I need to eat. And I need to, I need to do all of these things. And they actually kind of run into each other and keep me from accomplishing any of them. So I get overwhelmed and discouraged. We, 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 we struggle with that. And he, he writes about a moment in time when he was with some elite generals, uh, United States generals. And uh, they were talking about goal setting and planning and strategies and those kinds of things. And he asked them, he said, could you, in 25 words or less... Explain your process. And there was only one general that was really able to get it down to about 25 words or less. And this is what she said she did. She wrote out her list of everything she wanted to accomplish. She prioritized them numerically, starting with the most important at one, until she got to the bottom of the list. And then she went back up to number three, and she tore the paper off right there, And she threw three on down away because she knew she could only really keep about two things going in her head, about two goals she could accomplish. And it was interesting to me when I read that because I thought about when Jesus was asked what should be our our primary goals in life, he said two things. In fact, a man, a lawyer came trying to trap Jesus uh, and asked Jesus a question, what's life all about? And, and, and Jesus answered him. It's just very, very interesting. In Luke chapter 10, he, he said, what do you think it's all about? And this is what that, that young man said. He said, uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, and you shall love the neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, that's right. Over in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus basically makes that statement himself. This is it. Just, just these two things. And they're, they're deeply connected. You go throughout the New Testament, uh, especially the Gospels and, and, and all throughout the New Testament, and there's a lot said about that goal. It, it, the Scriptures tell us in the New Testament that if I think I'm loving God and I'm not loving other people, I've, I'm self-deceived. I'm lying to myself. So th- this, is, this is what matters it's the heart of the matter here. 
And yet it is so easy for me to fall out of that pursuit. It it is so easy for me not to, to love others, but to spend more time loving myself. Let me just illustrate, just from something that happened this past week. Um, most every evening when I leave here, I call Kathy and I say, honey, is there anything you need me to do or get? I mean, that's kind of to do or get. And she doesn't ever say it, but I know one of the things she's thinking you can do, you can straighten your attitude up before you get home. Um, so that goes without saying. Um, the, uh, but sometimes she'll say, yeah, how about, can you stop and get something? And so I think it was Wednesday night uh, this past week. She said, how about let's get pizza? And um, I, I have a place on the way home that's easy for us to get pizza that I like. And I'll go ahead and tell you, um, it's Marco's, um, right there at the, the entrance to Crowfield there by Food Lion. Uh, it's right on my, my, my path. And they have a drive-up window. I don't even have to get it on my truck. I can just drive right up, you know, to, to the window. And, um, but here's the deal. If you get in line and your pizza's not ready, you have to get out of line. You know, you have to drive through because they don't like you to wait. And I understand that. Um, and so uh, I call Kathy. We, we decide to do the pizza thing. I think I say something like, why don't you wait about 15 minutes or so and, um, to order. And for some reason, the Red Sea parted, Dorchester Road, and Lassen Road parted that night. And it was just like every light was green. And so I get into the parking lot and... No, my pizza's not ready. So I call Kathy because she's, she orders on that app thing, you know. And it'll tell you how much time's left. So I call her and say, how much time I got? She said, 20 minutes. I got to sit in a parking lot for 20 minutes? So I'm sitting in the parking lot. I think, okay, I'll answer a few emails and I'll read a little bit. And so I start doing that. And 20 minutes are up. And so I call Kathy. And I say, what's the, what's the app say now? Pizza's ready. Yay! I look up and nobody's in line. Nobody's at the drive through window. So I scoot my little truck right up there to that little window, and I tap on the window, and the girl comes over. And um, I say, uh, my name's Still, and I think, I think my order number was 697. I think, it was, I think that was, I don't know why I remember that. Anyway, I, I spit out what the number is, um, and she, she walks around back, going back to where kind of the pre- preparation area is, and she comes back and says, uh, that's going to be five minutes, Mr. Still. What do you mean five minutes? Now, I didn't say that out loud, but I said it in such a way that she knew that I was very disappointed. Now, she's a teenage girl who has no power. She wasn't making my pizza. She wasn't a slacker. She just went and reported what they told her from the back room. She had no authority over this issue. But now, in my mind, she was keeping me from accomplishing what I wanted in this moment. And I didn't care about her. Which is heartbreaking. But it was the reality in my moment. And she, she says, well, Mr. Still, if you want to, you can wait here. And I didn't say this out loud, but I'm thinking, you're tooting I'm going to wait here. I don't care how many people line up behind me. I don't care if they're pizza. Nobody drove up behind me. You'll be glad to know. 
And she comes and politely gives me my pizza. And I drive away, still with a little fuming in my heart because the app said my pizza was ready. It's about a three to five minute drive from that point to my house. And I don't know how the Holy Spirit tackles you, but he tackled me. And he just said, the problem's in your heart. The problem is you really didn't care about that young lady at all. You did not love her. You didn't think about how her day went, what she had dealt with, how many other jerk customers she had had that day. You were thinking about get your pizza, get home, and enjoy the rest of your evening. And the Holy Spirit just kind of messed with me in that moment and pointed out my lack, my lack of love. Friends, we, we live from a lack of love. In fact, Jesus said one of the ways that you know the end times are getting closer is that the coldness, the love capacity of many would grow cold. And what Jesus is pointing out is there is something that needs to be formed in us at a heart level, at a character level. Because all of us have a spirit. And our spirits are constantly being formed. It's just an inescapable reality that you are a spiritual being. You were created by God to experience life ceaselessly in existence in his great universe. That's who you are. That you would be with him. And he is forming us because we are a spirit. Our spirit is, is constantly, continuously being formed. And this is the big idea that I want to launch our series with. And it's simply this. All of us have a spirit that is constantly being formed on purpose or by accident, for better or for worse. All of us are spirit. We have a spirit. And that spirit is constantly being formed either on purpose or by accident, for better or for worse. You're a spiritual being. You were created in the image of God. And the implication of this is that we need to be guarding our hearts. We need to guard our spirit. We need to watch over that. So there's some homework this week. I know you can't. Yay, I came to church and I'm getting homework. Here's your homework. As you walk through this week, week starts on the Lord's Day today. As you're walking through this week, I'm going to ask you to notice the circumstances and situations you find yourself in. But then go deeper. Notice what those circumstances and situations do to your heart. Pay, pay careful attention to what, how, not the circumstance going on around you, but the response that's welling up inside of you that's trying to get out of your body and onto another person. Will you, will, you, will you let that be your assignment this week? Will you give the Holy Spirit permission to drill down deep in your soul, to point out that place and ask yourself some questions when you... When that response begins to come because of this circumstance, would you ask yourself, am I, am I hurried right now? Am I anxious right now? Am I angry? Am I discontent? Am I envious? Am, is there contempt in my heart for this other person? Am I withdrawn from, from this circumstance? Am I taking my soul out of this? Uh, am, is pride setting in? 
You see, we're being formed all the time, continuously being formed, no matter what environment we're in. And Jesus has a plan. Jesus has a plan for our formation. Jesus has a vision of what a heart fully formed after him would look like. Jesus says this in John chapter 4. He was speaking to the woman at the well who had come to draw some water. And so Jesus capitalizes on that imagery. And he tells us this because he's found out her life is thirsty. Not just for physical water, but her soul is thirsty. And so Jesus tells her this. Those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It will become a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Giving them eternal life. This, this is the last point for this morning, if you would. And it's this. If we're going to get to the heart of the matter, we must walk with Jesus to be formed by Jesus. It's got to be intentional. I can't just say, hey, Jesus, yeah, take me to heaven when I die. If I want the kind of kingdom life that Jesus said he came to bring to us now, I've got to be intentional. I've got to walk with Jesus with an intention to be formed by Jesus, to learn from Jesus how to live in this life with God. Paul wrote about this just about to every church in some fashion about this formation. To the church at Rome, he writes, For those God foreknew, he predestined that they would be conformed to the image of the likeness of his Son. Again, back to Romans 8, 28, we love that verse, but that's in the context of formation, that our hearts would be formed, our spirits would be formed. To the church at Galatia, he writes, he says, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I, I know that verse doesn't make a lot of women happy because they're thinking, Paul, you don't know nothing about no childbirth, man. But he's trying to say he, he anguishes over Christ being formed in people because he knew that's what Jesus came to do. That's, what, that's the reason that Jesus didn't save you and kill you is because he wants to be formed in you. He's at work in you and in me. A lot of you have heard me talk before and you're probably going to hear me talk a lot these next couple of weeks about a guy by the name of Dallas Willard. Um, he wrote several great books. One of them is Renovation of the Heart. And one of the things that I, I heard Dr. Willard say multiple times is this when it comes to this idea of formation. He says this, no one, no one need live in spiritual or personal defeat. We don't have to live lives that are defeated and, and beaten down. We don't have to live in our brokenness. We don't have to stay shackled to the shame of our withered hand. We can give it to Jesus. We can let him take our brokenness and turn it into something of beauty and power and strength for the sake of God's glory and for our good. But our hearts have to be desperate for this. We have to want to not just be known by Jesus. We have to want to walk with Jesus intentionally to learn from Jesus how to be formed by Jesus to live life with God. And in order to do that, we got to make some room. We got to clear some space 
You know, we talk about walking by the Spirit. We talk about being filled by the Spirit. In order to be filled by the Spirit and walk by the Spirit, we got to empty ourselves of ourselves. we got to make room. And so part of the question is, is what is God calling you to make room for that he wants to do in your life? And I just want us to close that way this morning, saying to God, God, show me. I want to I make that room. I want to make room so that I will have space in my life to bring my withered hand to you, that part of me that is filled with shame, that is my brokenness, the core of it, and I want to hear you say, stretch it out. Pull it out and stretch it out and let me see it because I want to enable you to do something great out of that. Let's pray. Lord, we come now. We come once again deciding. Deciding whether we're going to make room or not for you. To do what you want to do in us. Deciding, oh God, will I make that space, that place available to you? Will I stretch out that thing? Will I go public with my brokenness so that healing might come? So that you could turn what's ugly and broken in me into beauty and strength? Will I make room for that? So we come in these moments as we worship to recommit ourselves to that, but then, God, to say to you, please, 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 oh God, show us, Holy Spirit, show us where and how we need to make that room for you in these weeks to come. Show us where those places are in our hearts that have been deformed by the world, the flesh, or the devil, because we want to see those conformed And to your beautiful image, Jesus, show us now. It's in your name we pray.